Welcome everyone to Spirited Discussions. I am your host, Lachlan Watt, a passionate alcoholic and alcohol educator with years of experience in both the spirits and bar industries. Throughout this series, we are going to explore the history and production of some of our favorite vibations, and in each episode, I'll be joined by an incredibly experienced guest. Together, we will delve into a topic with all of the information that you need to understand why you enjoy what you're drinking, as well as some fun tidbits to share with your friends. I'm so looking forward to taking you on this journey to discover the wonderful world of alcohol. Welcome everyone to our final episode of this series of Spirited Discussions. Today, I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, Brooke Heyman, and we will be discussing the category of whiskey. Now, this is a very broad category, and I want to just mention beforehand that uh, I have previously done an episode on American whiskey with Tom Scott, where we explored bourbon and rye. But today, we'll be going more in depth into whiskey as a category and where it comes from and how it's made. And I'm very excited to be joined by Brooke today. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me, Lockie. It's fun to be in the studio with you as a compared to being in the bar in the office. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have a change of scenery when we diving into this category. So have a dram chat whiskey. Yeah, we always spend welcome. way too much time doing this. So. That, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Quick little thing uh, that I want to mention beforehand is so Brooke runs one of the best whiskey bars in Australia, and I can't just say that because I work there. But we've known each other for now nine years, I believe. Yep. Yeah, it would be. Getting yeah. close to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> a long time. Yeah. And it's really uh, exciting to have you here to to go through this stuff today because most of this stuff I learned from either yourself or Julian. And it is really exciting to be able to go through this category for, for everyone else who's listening. Before we do that, I'd just like to get a little bit of your history of this industry. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, started young, I guess, for, for whiskey in particular yeah. um, and being a female in the whiskey industry. So in 2010, uh, we opened the bar, we started a bar and we wanted to get into whiskey, but we weren't sure if it was quite something that uh, the Melbourne population was ready for. Yeah. Um, so we tested the waters and got a couple of whiskeys and started talking about them, brought the price down because whiskey was so expensive at that point. It was inaccessibly so. Yeah, it was. So I think like you look at a uh, really core cool range product now, so let's say Glenfiddich 12. Most people know yeah. Glenfiddich. I think they had it on the bar for about $20 a dram. And even now at high markups, you're looking at still $12. Yeah. So I think bringing it down, so making it an everyday drink was extremely important to us. And whiskey was always a kind of community spirit anyway. It was meant to be consumed to share with people and accessible. So why is it treated as such a premium pedestal kind of object? That's it. I think, uh, which we'll probably talk about later, the split between uh, blends and single malts was just unknown. Yeah. And it was it was vast as well. And no one really knew much about it. So it was only really picked up in the last 13 or so years. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think single malts have always been around in Australia, but uh, just as far as, you know, take the everyday drinker, it had to yeah. be accessible, it had to be affordable. Um, and so uh, blends were, were what most people had at home. I mean, my, I think my nan has like a magnum of J&B at <laughs> home and, and she thinks it's great. Uh, yeah. So I mean, good. it's always been the, the largest consumed product in the world, well, you know, as far as whiskey is concerned, is blended Scotch whiskey. It's yep. 
the the sheer volume that is produced and consumed globally is insane. That's it. And if I'm sitting down for a, a dram at the end of the night, I don't want anything that's super challenging. I'm happy to just sit down and enjoy something that's uh, it's all about the people. So if I it sit is. down with the right people and enjoy something that's affordable, then that's what it's about. It is. And I will still carry the Johnny Walker flag till the day I die. <laughs> I, you know, we've had a better experience than most being able to taste Johnny Walker going back through the decades and through time. That's it. Yeah. And and as a brand, they're becoming beginning to innovate a lot more. Yeah. Seeing where the world's going and being able to push that boundary a little bit further. Yep. And play a little bit. I mean, their, yep. their partnership with... Uh, Game of Thrones with yeah. fire and ice was was a huge, uh, just a huge leap. I think, and, and I remember tasting that um, for the first time out of a little paper cup. And <laughs> that ice, I could say immediately, it tastes exactly, well, not exactly, but very similar to a single malt, a Klein Leach single malt. Yeah, uh, the fire wasn't a big favourite of, but uh, but it just shows that there's diversity of product and and people are interested in tasting that. Yeah, absolutely. It's just providing them with the opportunity to expand because they, they've got their set markets anyway. They don't really need to push that further. I think you don't have to have uh, a cast strength, uh, big flavoured whiskey for diversity. So you, no. you can still sit down with your 40% dram and taste different things. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned that you uh, got in quite early. So you started your first bar. So those might be hearing our podcast dog, Grayson. He's currently just sitting at my feet whining, but we'll power through. So you started your first bar with Julian, your partner, what, 13 years ago? Yeah, it was 13 years ago in 2010 now. Yeah. Yep. And it was Chez Regine. It was a little cocktail bar with a little bit of a whiskey focus. That's it. Yeah. So when we first uh, started it, I, I was very green to to owning anything and to yeah. running anything. So I, but I did have a hospitality background and whiskey was something I was extremely interested in because I, uh, even though I was particularly a novice at that point myself, I understand that there's a diversity of flavor that, could, that is seen in the wine industry, but not appreciated. Um, but I was sitting down, uh, Julian was at the circus school at that point at yep. NICA and I sat down for a coffee and I'd always flick <laughs> through the little business listings, you know, back in the day, I don't even think they do them anymore. They had the little business listings uh, in the newspaper and it said family-owned cafe, little price, 5am <laughs> license and I thought, geez, I can afford that. Yeah. Let's see what happens. So I had no money to put into it, hence, uh, <laughs> hence it being pretty pretty simple at the start. But um, the exciting thing about that was that we got to play. We got to yeah. – there was nothing to risk except for that small price that we paid for the bar. So we got to play with a lot of whiskey. We got to play with a lot of uh, – uh, I guess pricing and we had a huge hospitality f uh, focus at that point, lots of people in and so we got to see firsthand uh, what the industry was talking about, what they were getting excited about and uh, that's also when our education program started with yep. the whiskey classes. Um, so I think to date we've, we've turned over about 20,000 people we've educated in Melbourne and it's not uh, high class education, it's just about sitting down, enjoying a dram and understanding what's on the shelf, what you like and that you can afford it and you can sit down and enjoy it. And I've run these classes now for the last few years uh, for you guys and I've seen that people are really excited just being in a room with people and just enjoying whiskey. And what they take away from it is that whiskey doesn't have to be that serious. You can have fun with it. You can enjoy it with whoever you, you are drinking it with. But there's a lot that's not known about the whiskey industry as well. People just see it as this premium product and it's not something that's just a – 
everyday drinker or something that you can approach on a singular day. That's it. I think we're taking the snobbery out of it. Yeah, that's yeah. what we're, well, that's what you guys have tried to achieve. And You've definitely helped them. <laughs> You've definitely helped them. And, and train people to, to take that on. Now, I reckon we might get started into our episode proper, but we'll start off with our 60-second history that we do with every single episode. I'm going to get you to time me on it. This is a tough one to do because I'm doing it in front of you, someone who's taught me most of what I know, <laughs> and it's going to be quite challenging. It's quite a deep history as well. So I promise to be as quiet as possible. No, please don't. <laughs> please give me a hard time. I know you've got some stuff loaded up from years of working with me. No. <laughs> All right, tell me when you're ready to go. And go. All right, after the invention of distillation in Mesopotamia around 2000 BCE, distillation spreads throughout Europe and eventually we see distillation arrive in the United Kingdom for for the where the most part the Irish were trying to minimize waste and distilling surplus grain around 1100 uh, common era. Now, while That's a 30 year history done. You've yeah. got two, two thirds left. I know. Uh while the <laughs> While the Scottish were probably doing some of this, there was uh, some of the earliest distillation of this rudimentary style of whiskey known as Wishkibar or the Water of Life was uh, produced on Isla by Irish monks. And then we don't really start to see commercialization until around the 1300s, 1400s in Scotland and Ireland, especially with uh, Friar John Corr at Lindor's Abbey producing Aquavitae or the Water of Life for the, the King of England. Now, in the 1500s, Ten the seconds. King Henry VIII, an awful tyrant, spread throughout the United Kingdom, destroying all the monarchy, uh, monasteries so he could uh, create his own church. Didn't make it. Oh, well. I'll quickly finalize that. That is very frustrating. And I only got halfway through. Jesus in Christ. In summary. <laughs> so. Basically, the Vikings know. <laughs> 1500s, the monarchies are dissolved and no longer spirit is being produced for the communities. We don't start to see it really properly legalized until 1824. Irish whiskey is king at that point in time because the cognac industry has died and we start to see uh, Irish whiskey take over the world. Although Irish whiskey dies around the 1920s for multiple reasons. America's been producing whiskey since their inception, well, at least their colonization, and now we're in the current period of global expansion in with whiskey being made in over 38 countries around the world. Jesus Christ. That took me and so you- much longer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy with that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a hard one to do. All right. Well, after all of that, well, people will have heard Grayson, our podcast dog, whinging throughout that. He uh, really wants to play today won't let us work. So he might make a bit more noise throughout this chat. He's making it more authentic. Everybody yeah, needs a bar dog. Exactly. If only he could be a little bit more calm, he would come to work with me every day. <laughs> He's always welcome. So I guess what was your very first experience with whiskey? My first experience was later than I most would expect. I get a lot of people talking about whiskey on a dummy, you know. Their granddad would pop that in their mouth and then that was their first experience. But being uh, from a farming family originally, um, I didn't have such a romantic, I don't have such a romantic (laughs) story. I I was in a bar that I was working in and uh, a lot of people were drinking Lagavulin, really smoky whiskey. uh, And I really wanted to figure out what they liked about it. So I poured myself a glass. I put some ice in it, obviously. And I force-fed myself a glass of Lagavulin and it's very similar to the first time you have espresso after drinking hot chocolates as a kid. Yeah, it can be quite challenging, can't it? It's very challenging and not enjoyable. But I went back again and again because I just – and then 
you know what, like three years later, not drinking it every night, but three years later, I remember someone asking me about smoke in, in, and peatiness in a, um, in a tasting and I said, look, you know what, I can't actually taste it anymore. I just get minerality. Yeah. It, the, the, it's it, there but it's... It's not like cigarette smoke is when you walk down the street. It's, a, it's something that is textural and sweet and mm-hmm. there's a lot more complexity to it but you don't pick it until you've been drinking it for a little bit. Yeah, and spend some time trying to analyse because a lot of these peat characteristics are very similar between different distilleries as they well. Are, there, are, yeah. there, there are minor changes but mostly quite similar. It's what's underneath that create that creates the, the individuality of these distilleries. Yeah. And particularly because a lot of them use the same peat source. Exactly, especially yeah. on Isla. You yeah. know, they're all using the same kind of barley coming from the same producer. So it can be quite similar. Yeah, and I mean... Look, as far as first experiences go, Pete's probably not the best way to go when it comes to whiskey. No, and that's something we've always told people. First experience, try and avoid it. Yeah. We have, we've had so many horror stories of people coming in saying, no, my father gave me Laphroaig as a child. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, often, it's often peat or it's bourbon, sadly. Yeah. but So that was your very first experience. What was it that really um, made you want to spend time with the, the category or made you want to delve into it further after that first experience. Yeah, look, I think, like I said before, it's the diversity of flavour profile. So, um, and and you know what? It was the people as well. So um, Jules and I had the bar in 2010 and then yeah. we're playing with whiskey a little bit. I think 2012 we went to Tasmania and you'll hear this story over and over from many people in the industry, but we went down there and we'd actually been watching Gourmet Farmer uh, yeah. and Jules <laughs> is a bit of a fanboy. And so Matthew Evans had been down to see Bill Lark and yeah. – you know, we'd been pouring some lark and we thought this guy looks all right. So we got down there and we, we just cold called him. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, I'm not free today, but tomorrow I'll pick you up. And that was it. The, the hospitality that he offered, taking us out in the car and then we swung by a guy's house called Tim Duckett yep. on the way back and he showed us uh, his large collection and we just gelled because he said, you know, this is my favourite bottle. And we said, no, we, we got three of those and weren't allowed any more. He says, well, I've got a case at the back. Would you like to sit down for a dram, you know? And that coupled with the scenery of Tasmania, the hospitality, the scenery, the production side of things yep. and seeing how simple and welcoming it was, it became a lifestyle at that point rather than just a drink. Yeah, and lifestyle and rather than also a career or a job, it is something that, you know, the people that we all work with day to day, it's what they, it's what we are. It's not. That's it. It's, you know. yeah, it's, we share one big love. Yeah, it yeah. is. And it is the romance behind it. The people, the, the place, the community, it is, it is a, it's a romantic notion. And I mean, by comparison, let's not kid ourselves. There are like whiskey distilleries are factories. And yeah. so, you know, I, we've traveled a lot, you and I, both to lots of distilleries around the world. And some of them you do go into and it's generally a tour that it doesn't operate as a tour. You know, it's just a, a little uh, – we're, we're very lucky to get in once in a year and, uh, and it's a factory yeah. and it's boring and it it's is. just – they're just pumping it out. But, uh, but the fact that I think Tasmania and Australians and just uh, also people around the world have taken it and turned it into uh, something that's – enjoyable and experimental and you can play with and meet people and I think that's something that's just yeah and that leads amazing. back into that romance of it it's about the people less the the place of well where it's made you know it is the people the the celebration of 
if you look at, say, the original terminology of, of whiskey being Vishkibar, the water of life, mm-hmm. it is, you uh, know... Uh, uh, well, we certainly it, come to life after a drink, yeah, don't we? Is, so. yeah. <laughs> we definitely do. But, yeah, it is, it's, about, it's about celebrating life with people, you know. That's, that's what, it, what it's there for. So. And I, I guess, like, you could, you could turn back to the, the, the Scottish uh, wedding of the baby's head. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, it's welcoming that baby into the world everyone sharing a dram to celebrate. It's, exactly. Same it, with the union of two people at a wedding. That's it. Yep. You know, yep. celebrating with a, a, a pewter bowl, a quake full of, of whiskey, it. which yep. is, you know. Not so kosher after COVID, sharing no. a bowl of whiskey, but <laughs> <laughs> I think we all still, share in the one bread. No. <laughs> I think they're still powering through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, while we go through whiskey as a category, I'd like to kind of break down some of the terminologies people see on bottles. So. For example, let's start with a broad umbrella term of what whiskey is. Now, there are two spellings of whiskey, so we'll break that down as well. After that, I would like us to go through some of the terminologies people will see on bottles, some of the categories people might encounter, just kind of break down some of this terminology so they can, well, we can all understand better what we are drinking. So first and foremost, let's unbreak, uh, break down the umbrella category, which is whiskey. What is whiskey? Yeah, so I like to describe whiskey when, I, when somebody asks me what is whiskey because I usually, usually don't understand that it is an umbrella category. So yeah. whiskey uh, is basically it's a grain that's been distilled um, and then you put it in a cask and it's aged. So whiskey is an umbrella term for single malt, bourbon, blended malts, yeah. blended whiskey. Um, Single pot still whiskey. That's it. You know, what have you. Uh, there are so many different categories within that umbrella term. The biggest one I, I find people confuse is bourbon. They say, so what's the difference between bourbon and whiskey? But whiskey, bourbon is a whiskey. But not all whiskey is bourbon. No. All bourbon is whiskey. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes. And the other one is um, what's the difference between scotch and whiskey? That's another one that I find very fun. It's the yeah. same thing. All scotch is whiskey, but not all whiskey is scotch. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the... Um, that's the breakdown, simple breakdown of it, right? Mm-hmm. So after going through what the umbrella term is, let's break down some of these other categories that do exist. So let's start with single malt whiskey. Yep, so single malt whiskey, uh, single distillery, yep. single grain, distilled and uh, and then matured for at least, depending on the country, two, three years. Yeah, and so you can make it anywhere in the world. It's got to be made from one single grain, which is malted barley. Yep. And matured in a timber vessel for that period of time. Which is sometimes specified as oak. Yeah. yeah. Which, again, depending on the country. Probably right? best described as originating from Scotland and mm-hmm. then as we've, uh, which I would, I'd like to describe as an old world yeah. um, production and then new world categories, oh, sorry, new world whiskies, styles of single malt popping up all around the world. And when that happens, new regulation is pop, pops up with different uh, different countries uh, and new experimental things when it comes to yeast and cask and other other things that... Distillation uh, methods, etc. So single malt, if you're talking about single malt, we generally talk about Scotland yeah. when it comes to maturation, uh, age requirement. And I think people also don't realise that single malt is a relatively, as far as globally concerned, a quite a young style, only, well, the terminology only really originating in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. But it was produced beforehand. It's just the terminology around it, surrounding it, and the the brand awareness of it 
starts in the 60s. Yep, that's right, yeah. So it is quite a relatively young style in the grand scheme of things. I think it's as, as we've started to try and protect um, origins of production. So when you're looking at Parmesan cheese and, yeah. and other things like that. Protection of uh, styles of wine like sherry and port wine. That's it, um, yeah. Etc. you know. Those protections protect a, a brand identity, which is that that category, that style. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so now single malt's out of the way. What about single grain whiskey? Yeah, so single grain comes into a different territory when we're talking about two different types of stills. Yeah. Um, so single grain can be made from, uh, in Scotland, it can be made from barley, wheat, corn, oat or rye uh, grain. But there's two different types of distillation. So you're looking at pot still. So pot still is rudimentary it's something that um started on the kitchen stove yeah so somebody would put a like a very crude beer into a pot still let's call it so and then they would distill it once twice three times and uh usually back in the day they would just drink it neat like that straight off the still as a white spirit as a white spirit something that was potentially deadly yeah (laughs) um but uh as years went on obviously stills got bigger um illicit distilling was a thing and so when the tax man came in, um, things were regulated. Yeah. And so we see a lot of safety come in there. But um, pot stills generally give uh, slower distillation and a lot more flavour when it comes to the spirit that comes out. And they generally run two to three times depending on where you're located. So the column still, on the other hand, was uh, it sort of came in around 1830 um, and it allowed for continuous distillation, which meant we distilled to a higher alcohol which gives less character in the flavour yeah. and we have a lot more efficiency. So we're seeing, you know, on the money side, these big companies come in and think, well, you know, we can we can create something that's less characterful, less offensive um, and can be blended in very cheaply. Yeah. And we can deliver something cheaper to the market or we can make more money. Yeah, on the side. Exactly. So, so when you're looking at single grain, single grain can be made from uh, pot or column still, but it's generally those five grains and in the new world we're seeing a lot more playfulness with the, when it comes to that so uh, with the type of grains and particularly from brewers well just for a little bit of context for people I know we'll talk about some some companies that we're looking out for around the world for these different styles but one I really want to mention for single grain is because it is one that's not very well known is different companies around the world that champion that single grain style mm. so there's one in Scotland which is Cameron Brig but then you've also got uh, I think Nikka Coffee Grain from Japan. Yeah, so look, uh, con- column stills when it comes to it they, or, or continuous distillation, it was traditionally started in, in Ireland and Scotland. Um, but as we have expanded around the world, we're seeing distilleries add column stills in for breadth of flavour character. Yeah. And particularly um, in Japan we're seeing some excellent quality grain whiskies come out of there. So Nikka Coffee Malts coffee still, yeah. column still, uh, and Nikka coffee grain being a grain whiskey, um, extremely good quality for a grain whiskey. And some of the most commercially available uh, coffee, uh, well, column still spirits really. And Yeah, and I think we'll, like, we'll get into this next, but blended scotch is often seen as a really poor quality. It's just, and it isn't, it doesn't have to be. Um, but what's happening is in Japan we're seeing blending become something that's uh seen to be like a really it's a really it's a word i'm looking for it's, it's a, an art form it it's is a, an art form yeah, yeah perfect so you know you go to um 
you go to the Nika Blending House in Tokyo and they've got a bar at the bottom of it and they've got, uh, last I checked, they had five blenders and and it's seen as something, they put the attention to detail and the pride they have in their job like they do with anything else as a culture. It's something that's uh, transforming blended whiskey, grain whiskey around the world. Yeah, and it's changing that approach and that understanding for, for the consumer, which is really exciting on our front at least. It is. It's definitely is, especially when it comes in affordably. You know, a lot of the Scotch uh, grain whiskies, because they're distilled to such a high alcohol, they have to sit in cask a lot longer to give them character because they're not pulling character from spirit. They're having yeah. to get character from cask. And so they, well, we taste and you and I taste. We still yeah. taste 40-year-old, 50-year-old grain spirits but it's still not ready yet. No, it's and not- it needs some time to become more integrated and, you know, more elegant almost. That's it. And so this is what the Japanese have done really well. It's they've been able to bottle at a lower a lower age, but it's just got so much character. And much, uh, yeah, it's really well put together, very well structured spirit. And that's their blenders. Yeah, yep. it's, it's all down to the blending team. And that's one thing that the Japanese have been very, very successful in with, well, especially within the last 30 or so years. Yeah, absolutely. With brands like Hibiki and etc. you know, blending these components together to create something so beautiful and elegant. And I guess that's why we've seen a Japanese boom. But then there's, <laughs> a, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, you know, the, we talk about the Japanese blenders, but yep. uh, until recently you could call anything a Japanese whiskey. So they were bringing scotch into Japan and they were blending it with some of their Japanese or not blending it with Japanese at all <laughs> and bottling it as Japanese whiskey. And uh, even though it was scotch, it came out as some of the best whiskey in the world because their blenders had put their hand to it. Yeah, and they've been so successful in doing so. Now, we've talked a lot about blending already, but let's define what blending is. So we'll start with blended malt whiskey. Yep, cool. So um, blended malt is uh, it's a blend of multiple malt whiskey distilleries or malt yep. whiskey um, and Probably, uh, look, you don't actually see it on the market very often. You usually see a blended malt, uh, sorry, a blended whiskey, which is, or blended Scotch whiskey as it's often called, yeah. being from Scotland, uh, which also has grain whiskey in it. So a blend of grain and malt whiskey. Um, but look, if we're looking at uh, blended malt, probably the best example is Johnny Walker Green. Um, it's something that I think it's funny because you look at Johnny Walker and you think, blended scotch whiskey you don't think blended malt whiskey Um, but next time you pick up a bottle of johnny walker go straight for it it's you'd be surprised a lot of whiskey drinking bartenders head straight for it because the quality is excellent it is and it's also a blend of only four distilleries as well and they're very proud of that they'll mention all four on the label yeah yeah so rather than the the standard 20 to 40 distilleries they're blending from for the other products that they make well i think a lot of a lot of blenders actually use a, a, a small number of distilleries but then what happens is when production drops out, they have to fill it in with something else. So exactly, that's yeah. when uh, they need a, a fruity component or a sherry component and that's that's when something else pops in. Yeah. Well, it's it's such an incredible thing that Johnny Walker have managed to do. I'll also quickly mention this whiskey that you brought along, which is also a blended malt Japanese whiskey. Yeah. Another one of the greatest uh, Japanese blenders and that's yep. uh, Chirokudo. Ichiro Kudo, it's a blend of just two distilleries in Japan, Chichibu and Komagatake, which is uh, the Shinshu distillery in um, the mountains just northwest of Tokyo. West of Tokyo. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I've driven there in a car, but uh, my sense of direction is terrible. <laughs> um, and these guys in, uh, what, about 
seven, eight years ago, they traded New Make Spirit. So the spirit straight off the still and matured it at both locations just to see what was hap- what would happen. And I think there's a lot of play going on with the Japanese industry, not that we're on that right now, no. but uh, you look at, um, you know, uh, Mars as a company have Shinshu Distillery and then they've opened up a distillery down south where the the, the weather is like, it's like Queensland or, or purely tropical anyway. It's uh, it's something that uh, they're playing with firstly with maturation in a hotter climate and a humid climate yep. at that. Um, but then they've opened the distillery as well and so they're, they're now playing a lot with that kind of thing. And multiple companies are doing that. So uh, Ichiro's are also playing around with that maturation environment as well, just trying to be able to understand their environment and control the the spirit that they inevitably have come out of the, their cask. Yeah, that's it. And that's what this exp- uh, this experiment was all about, was trying to understand that relationship between environment and spirit. And I think, like, I, look, I don't know, I want to stray too far off the path, but when you talk about experimentation, the new world category of whiskey is extremely exciting. And we like, we just had, uh, you know, milk and honey we were yep. tasting that recently, and that's that's produced in Israel. You don't usually think of Israel as a whiskey-producing country. But and, they, uh, it obviously worked well for them because they won world's best single malt recently at the World Whiskey Awards. So. That's right. And, and you know, that was for their sherry cask. And they've got some incredible releases as well and they're experimenting a lot. And so they had uh, they had a large investment and in, in knowledge come into the, to their distillery um, purely because Israel has five separate microclimates. Yep. And so they've, they're maturing at places like the Dead Sea. And uh, that that's... Very exciting from a from an experimental perspective. It is, and as we both tasted recently with their Dead Sea whiskey release, which only a small percentage of that spirit was matured at the Dead Sea because the losses are so high in that area. That's right. Yeah. Per per annum, that they could only mature there for uh, I think they told us between six and nine months, and then they had to pull it out because otherwise they would lose too much volume. Well, you know, it was on the roof of a hotel, so yeah, that sort of that makes a little help. bit more sense. Yeah. The salt combined with the roof of a hotel Plus and the, being the completely dry environment, yeah. That's right, yeah. But it's exciting. Like it's it's fun. It's making whiskey fun again. It know. is. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, and from obviously I think from an innovation perspective, it's, uh, it's great from a business perspective as well because – we tasted that and we thought that could have been an 18-year-old whiskey, right? It reminded it me of young. one of my favourite spirits, yeah. um, which was Kalila Unpeated. Yep. Of yep. which I wish they'd make more of that stuff. But Maybe we should. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> we, sh- we should get back on track. We We're should. just getting too yeah, excited talking about what's <laughs> happening around the world. Um, all right, so let's go into single pot still whiskey next. This is a category people don't see too often, but we're hoping that it changes very soon. I think this is a category that people drink a lot. Um they don't realise though because it's just just misunderstood. So single pot still whiskey uh, is usually tied to Ireland. There's a lot of producers around the world trying to replicate it now though, but mostly it's it's a blend of uh, it's it's a pot still, yeah, blend of unmalted and malted grain whiskey, predominantly barley. Um, but the beautiful thing about this is the character you get out of it. So just from that unmalted character, you get or aspect you get raspberry fruits like vanilla autumn leaves and and you know whenever i blind taste one of these the texture on your palate is incredible so there's nobody's been quite able to do it really well but i don't think we're far away from reproducing this well we're not and we're seeing a massive expansion in that in the irish whiskey industry as well with you know all these young distilleries putting out single pot stills now with dingle doing doing one very successfully as well, batch yep. to batch. Yep. Uh, Mikil uh, in Galway, 
uh, etc. They're all shout out to them. They're going to do great yeah, things. I'm yeah. very excited about what Mick Hill are doing yep. and cannot wait to see what comes to fruition from that. that and it's spirit. interesting how this cutter is brought out uh, like a, an ancient tie to Pochin production. Yeah. So, which is for those that don't know what Pochin is, it's just a really crude form of whiskey that's drunk un- unaged. Yeah, it's got it shares more with the origins of whiskey than the whiskies we drink nowadays do. It does, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of yeah. We, <laughs> <laughs> Again, there, off there topic. are a lot of yeah, yeah. That's right, and there are, there are <laughs> like, a lot of myths about uh, Pochin. But uh, if you do get the chance to be in Galway, a lot of people go there for holidays. Head there to Mickle Distillery. Yeah. It's uh, they'll school you on it. They know everything there is to know about it. Absolutely, they've forgotten more about Pochin than any of any of us will ever know. That's right. Now, the final one is bourbon whiskey. Yeah, cool. So bourbon, Australians drink lots and lots of bourbon. So <laughs> everybody's familiar with bourbon, but, um, you know, produced in America, um, 51% corn at a minimum, uh, which gives this really, really sweet character. It's beautiful. Um, and it has to be produced in a, a new heavily charred oak, mostly American oak, and that's where you get yeah, those lovely vanillas and, and huge coconut character. Yeah. And subsequently off that, um, it's, it is an older style than bourbon, but rye whiskey that comes out of the US. Yeah, rye whiskey, um, okay, sorry, technically it needs to be, so 51% minimum uh, rye whiskey, spicier, grassier, but uh, it's really interesting because it, it hails back to when uh, German settlers settled in, in America and that's what they were growing is rye. Yep. But um, it's becoming a huge category now because it's, a lot of people drinking it. It can since, be absolutely delicious. Since the late 90s, early 2000s, with all the bartenders who were trying to hone their craft and studying the history of cocktail production, yep. rye has really expanded. It has, yeah. You're seeing it produced heavily around the world again. You've got rye whiskey coming from most countries that produce whiskey anyway. And I think with so many producers of whiskey in America right now, and, and like I always talk about this New World category, but New World distilleries in America are producing some incredible stuff and blending some stuff. Yeah. Um, we were talking about Barrel uh, earlier on. They're, yeah. they're blending some incredible uh, some incredible whiskey over there. They're, they're also just picking and choosing what they want to blend. They don't care about particularly style. They just want to create a great final product for people to drink. Yeah. And that, that's actually another great example of a blended whiskey that yep. is exceptional. It is. And they've done, yeah, they're blended rye, they're blended bourbons, but then they've also just completely left those structures behind and experimented. That's it, yeah. And had some fun with it, which is at the end of the day what we all try and strive for. That's you know? it, that's it, yep. Um We've mentioned quite a few different uh, categories and different styles. Now, a lot of people will probably have heard of certain kind of rules regarding whiskey or what we consider to be stigmas around whiskey. Yep. Now, I'd like to kind of break some of these down a little bit as we go forward. Um, First one, we kind of touched on a little bit. Single malt whiskey is better than blended whiskey. What are your thoughts on this? I think we've touched on this a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, I think um, I think originally blended whiskey was seen as inferior because it's so easily readily available, and it's something that's on the shelf for a cheaper price. And cheaper yeah. equals inferior, right? Like for us as consumers. So we're seeing a rapid change in that, though. There are blends on the shelf that are really expensive, and so if we're talking about price, then you know the blended whiskey category has uh, premium blends out there. Yeah. Um, but I think the New World, uh, the New World whiskey category has a lot of um, play in this area. So, like we're talking about Japan, America, 
even, you know, we, we have to mention country to coast. There's yeah. a there's a blended whiskey in Australia. Um, it took out three trophies at three separate awards Within last the space year, of a few year. months, yeah. Different judges as well. Yeah. It was exceptional. And so some of the blends that we're doing here in Australia are amazing. Um, but I think single malts, uh, obviously, it's, it's usually seen as superior because there's a lot more character in the spirit, but we don't necessarily see that anymore it was also marketed that way in the 80s so marketing comes into that uh quite a lot as well um creating this kind of imagery of single malt whiskey being premium trying to sell more whiskey from individual distilleries while the whiskey industry was suffering at that point in time yeah and look the 1980s um when single malts weren't available beforehand so in the 1980s uh when Diageo wasn't called Diageo then, but when they when they decided to release their single malts to the market, it was groundbreaking. You couldn't get a single malt whiskey. I mean, uh, you, well, you couldn't until since the grocers days. No. So you used to, for those that don't know, you used to go down to the grocery store before there was packaging. You'd find a cask at your grocery store. You bring your bottle and you'd pour it straight from the cask into the bottle. Yep. And you'd take it home. It was it was all about local. I mean, we we, we talk about drinking local nowadays, but that that's how it, I mean that's what they were also bl- where it all started. some of these were also blended in grocery store as well. That's where a lot of these blends started. Where Johnny Walker grocery stores were just putting together something for their consumer. Yep. That's was, shite. Let's try and work around something else. Yeah, yeah. let's try add and something put else together. and see if it makes it a bit better. It's the original cocktail. It is, and they they influence the whiskey consumption globally by just doing these things in little grocery stores in wherever. It's like microeconomics, right? <laughs> yeah, it's also like um, what we see nowadays in you know boutique grocery stores where you can fill your own bottle of this boutique olive oil or something like that. You know, that's right. I think the exciseman <laughs> has something to say about that when it comes to whiskey, though. <laughs> Absolutely does. So that stigma is something that we're trying to to break through at the moment because there are incredible blending houses. So the one we're tasting here, this Itchrose Malt, we've also got things like Hibiki we mentioned before, Compass Box in Scotland doing some exciting things. And being cheeky about it at the same time, very entertaining. Absolutely. Love watching it but also love enjoying drinking it and seeing it happen. For example, probably one of our most fun was the Whiskey de Table, the, yeah. the blended whiskey that you put in a fridge. And drink cold, chilled, like a white wine, and it was served in a white wine bottle. And oh god, it was delicious. It was so something much really fun. exciting. It's all about the drinking experience and having fun. And people really challenged that that concept as well. They did, yeah. It was about starting that conversation on blending as yep. well, what they were trying to do. But that is the case. I think as we see more blends, premium. I don't want to use the word premium because that's not it's it's incorrect. I think as we see better blends come to market consistently, we'll see more people drinking them. You just look at Takatsuru. Before there was a drought when it came to the Nika Takatsuru, it was readily available and we were all drinking it and that was an exceptional blend. It it was and it still is to this day. It's just become a little bit more inaccessible. That's right, yeah. And once, yeah, like you said, once they become more accessible, the consistency that's there is something that's really highly prized. That's why they were always so successful. Yep. So I think our next one I want to touch on is I guess bourbon, especially here in Australia, we have a certain uh, concept of bourbon <laughs> yeah. and uh, who consumes it and when they consume it and why, you know. Yeah. And um, I guess the, the terminology that I've, I've put down here is maybe a little problematic, which is bourbon is for bogans. But yeah. there, is, there is a certain concept that bourbon is, you know, 
it's cheap, it's accessible, you know, it's usually comes in a can with another American export. Yeah, I think, look, I think we were, we've invented some great things here in Australia with the bourbon and coke RTD, <laughs> the goon bag. Yeah. Uh, and, again, it comes down to price, right? It does. You can have an RTD really cheap, take it take it to a party and, and you don't have to think about it, but... Um, and you know we we talked about we've talked about this in the past, but Coca Cola, it's something that you drink as a kid, and you add bourbon to that sweet vanilla yeah. coconut bourbon, and it just adds it's like it's like a slushy. It's yeah. just so easy to drink, and so this is this comes down to to my coffee theory. You're not going straight for the espresso; you're going into a mocha. So the the bourbon and coke is a mocha, and I think that's. That's why it's so accessible and so many people are drinking it. Um, but I think, you know, bourbon drunk neat has so much to give. There are so many delicious bourbon or bourbon bottles out there, brands, um, that I, I think we should see more and more people and we are seeing more and more people take that journey. So they're going from their mocha to their cappuccino to their yeah. espresso. And so... It's only a natural progression, I think. It's I would never expect someone to go straight from a, a bourbon and coke to a neat car strength bourbon. Yeah, you'd be mad. You wouldn't enjoy it. Why would you do that? So no. But I think the stigma comes down to the number of people that are drinking it. Yeah. And the situations we're seeing them drink it in. So something similar to what we have with rum here in this country as well. Yeah. Yeah, but rum is you know again cola. Yeah. As again, sits in that same bracket. It goes through the exact same thing. But with uh, bourbon, as you mentioned before, we're seeing all this incredible stuff coming into the country or just being produced globally with barrel uh, blenders over in the US. Yep. New Riff is one of my personal favourites, as you well know. Oh, it's incredible, <laughs> incredible. If you're hearing this, go yeah. get a bottle. Yeah. But um, but I think also some of the big bourbon houses, they're, they're actually starting to change their ways and they're selecting casks or blending premium batches and so they're taking – they're actually meeting the market yeah. whereas they didn't do that before. Wild Turkey is a great example of that because Wild Turkey is one that had a bit of a sour name here in Australia <laughs> but all of a sudden we're starting to get some of their premium products into the country and people are going crazy for it, they're absolutely great. crazy for it. They're great. There is, I mean, you and I know there are some bourbons, I'm not going to name them here, that we, we go to large retailers and if they're out of stock we beg yeah. <laughs> and – we wait for it to come back and they're exceptional. But We're not um, going to promote people also going out to try and yeah, find yeah. them while we're already trying to. No. <laughs> <laughs> come but, into the bar and ask Lockie if you yeah. want. <laughs> but it is, it, it is one of those categories that's really expanded within the last 30 years as well and become had this bit of a revival with craft producers producing some incredible product. Yeah, particularly craft producers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really exciting to, to see that happening. Next stigma. Whiskey oh. is a men's drink. Yeah, I hate this topic. Yeah. Um, as a woman, I always get asked this, but I have to say I've had so many passing comments, poorly passing comments at the bar, being behind the bar, that it is something that is real. Like it's something that people think uh, is a man's drink. And it's always men that think it's a man's drink. It but, is. Um, but you know what, This I was reading a book and, and it really hit me. It was uh, about the London Stock Exchange. Mm hmm and I'd be, I'd be happy to be corrected on this if somebody out there does uh, correct me, but it was originally a coffee shop. Yeah. And so coffee and tea 
were men's drinks and they were kept in locked boxes at home because they were such a commodity, like such a, so rare. And it was because the man was earning and it was he that entertained and, and drank that. But the London Stock Exchange was a coffee house and people met there for business. And that's when it really hit me that it's not about now it being a men's drink. It's just about historical factors. So yeah. I think um, we are definitely seeing a huge amount of uh, women come into the industry and there is, I don't think there's a stigma anymore. I think that women are really well respected in the industry right now. And I, I've seen it personally over the bar and, you know, with, I mean, I, I've been very lucky to work with people like yourself and, you know, people, uh, other incredible women that have absolutely gone on to destroy the whiskey industry entirely, like Claire Harmon, Evie Leong, yep. Miranda, Lydia Wood. And um, you know what? We have to give a shout out to Anna who won the Australian Malt Whiskey yeah. Tasting Championships on the weekend because uh, it's often said and it has been proved that women have a better sensory um, for, for whiskey. Anyway, they... Anna walks in, we had half an hour to all judge these whiskies and she walked in as a uh, guest who wasn't competing but happened to just nose the whiskies, write them down and then she didn't taste them. Nope. She took it out. Yep. Um, which is exceptional. Second woman to take it out in Australian history. Yeah. And, and she is a consumer. She's not in the industry, not as far as I know anyway. And she, I think it's, ex it's excellent. You should see some of I think, you know what, when it happens, the men's faces are excited and I received, when I won it a couple of years ago, I received nothing but support. <laughs> they were all excited to see a woman win. It was great. And I also know for a fact that all, a lot of them weren't surprised to see you win it either. Yeah, but I think that's, <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense when you're in a whiskey bar. You've got yeah. more of a chance yeah. than somebody who just, uh, you know, drinks it every and now and then. For those of you who don't know, we were just mentioning Anna Estevez, who just won the Australian Malt Whiskey Tasting Championships that happened in Sydney uh, for 2023, um, of which Brooke had won, what, five years ago? 2018, yeah. Yeah, five years ago. So the second woman to take out that award, which is absolutely incredible. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's, I it's, love seeing how peeved everyone is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they weren't as angry as last year with who won. <laughs> oh, well. So I guess the final stigma I'd like to us to chat about is the older the whiskey, the better. Yeah, I've tasted some pretty bad old whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think what happens is, is the stigma actually drives distillers to age it for longer. Yeah, and that's not for the better of the flavour of the whiskey. I know that my dad would love to see a 1953 bottle on his table, but if it tastes terrible, it just ruins everything that that's about, right? Yeah. So um, distilleries have actually moved towards moving vintages off their bottle if they had them at all. Bell Blair is a really good example. They're going down now to age statements and there are a couple of distilleries that still release a vintage every year, but they're so hard to get a hold of. And I just think old whiskey, I, I've it can just taste like oak. You're yeah. missing that sweet barley character if it's going too far. So um, in saying that, I've tasted some incredible old whiskeys as well. So You and I both. It's, it's like everything. There's good and there's bad and it depends on the, the producer itself and how they approach it right it. yeah and look i think what we're seeing is with new world distilleries or new distilleries popping up around scotland in particular and with uh, a couple of influences like jim swan um we're seeing techniques 
sort of adopted like STR cask that make a really young whiskey taste exceptional. So we tasted recently a Del Munich new yeah. distillery, five years old, and it came out as the best whiskey that we had that day. It was and spectacular. It was amazing. And I think, you know, you're looking at Elsa Bay, um, there's a couple of other distilleries that are producing youthful-ish whiskey and they're exceptional. I'd much prefer to drink those than an older whiskey, especially when you look at the rate of, of inflation on that that yeah. rare whiskey, that old whiskey. The price point's just getting inaccessible as well. So uh, a good example of that is the Glen Farkless Family Cast series, right? Yeah, really good example. They were relatively affordable for their age point when they were first released, but nowadays it's just... Exceptional. Like we had uh, what we, we used to serve, I think it would have been about eight years ago, the 1953 we served for, I think it was $200 a dram. And now to put that into perspective, today we'd have to sell it for... Around about three thousand dollars a dram for the same it's same exact same pitch. bottle, yeah. Thirteen um, years older potentially, but yeah. but still not. You know, is it worth? Who can afford that? No one can. Well, very few can. And, and you know, you hear of these fly in fly outs, and it's kind of a funny story. We were at Glen Farkless, Jules and I, yeah, uh, oh maybe uh, quite a while ago anyway, and um, we we know them quite well there, so we, we were just catching up and. They said the day before they'd had a private jet fly in, bought a couple of casks, including uh, a lot of the family cask vintages, yep. flew them back to China on their plane and then drank them all in one night. Jesus. Now they don't sell casks at Glen Farkless, but the price offered made them say yes. Yeah. So it's not about, it's not about old whiskey being better. I think it's a bit more about status and wanting something that is extremely unique. It is. And if you want good whiskey, it's just got to be good whiskey. There is no rhyme or reason or perfect age for That's right. anything. If there was one perfect way to do everything, everyone would do that thing and the world would be a very boring place. Exactly. And I think that's what our mission is, right, to yeah. educate people and to, to teach them to understand what is good so that – doesn't matter about price point, age, or all these these other stigmas. You you can buy something confidently and just enjoy it. And it's also one of those things that's taste first, ask questions after. You yeah, know? that's it. <laughs> yep. Always make up your own opinion first, and everyone's got a different palate and will enjoy things in a different way. Oh yeah, we've had we've had some flights before. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we all do. We always do. Just um, good. You don't have to share a bottle. <laughs> no, we agree on a lot of the same uh, things, except a few things. A few things. <laughs> now. Are there any companies that we should all be looking out for around the world that really kind of champion whiskey more Just, more wholly? Are you talking bigger companies or bigger companies, like more accessible? Um, we can go to companies, distilleries, bars, brands. Yeah, look, I think we've we have covered quite a lot actually from Barrel, New Riff, Elsa Bay, Milk and Honey in Israel, Dal yeah. Munich being the newer distillery. Um, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society, which is championing cast drink single casks. So when you get to the yeah. espresso part of your journey, they are there delivering huge amounts of flavour. I think personally that we need to look local. I think the Australian whiskey industry is producing more single malt in particular, but more malt whiskey than ever before. Yeah. And But we're also producing bourbon styles that can't be called bourbon in Australia, but they are that style um, and they're exceptional. And I, I think, you know, like um, – Upshot, Whippersnapper Upshot, Red Corn winning best corn whiskey in the world recently at the yeah. World Whiskey Awards is an extremely good example. 
that is a well-priced, exceptional whiskey, best in the world. Yeah, and but nobody's their, buying it. Even their core range uh, upshot, their upshot cast strength is one of my favourite. Well, I guess bourbon style whiskeys that for its price point, it's absolutely exceptional. Exceptional, and and I think, uh, look, I think the problem is that as we're learning in Australia to distill and to mature in our different climate, there are some bad ex- examples out there, yeah. and I think naturally we expect the Australian whiskey to be the same price point as Scotch whiskey, and it isn't at the moment. It's getting there. There are some great examples like King Lake O'Grady's stand. An incredible whiskey that's affordable, about one hundred and twenty dollars a bottle. Yep, give or take. Um, yeah, and it's there. There are a lot of distilleries around Australia producing exceptional whiskey. So I think we need to, you know, we look at I guess Spring Bay, Overeem, Flurio, look at Whippersnapper Distillery, um, Cape Byron just launched their whiskey and that is exceptional. Uh, King Lake, obviously, Backwoods. I can't even get started. There are so many, but there are so many bars that are now stocking these. Go in and ask them what's great. Yeah. Should be drinking local, I think. Yeah, and it's such an easy time to do that with shipping costs going up, so the price of whiskey is going up as well coming from other countries. So And producing like, the, the miles they need to take to get yeah. to you. I, I don't think we should stop drinking scotch, but I think that as time goes on, we'll probably be producing better quality whiskey than Scotland. Uh, in some respects, I mean, you look at Sullivan's Cove taking out best whiskey in the mm. world and how that changed the landscape completely. Uh, something that a lot of people don't realise is they've technically won four different awards for their whiskey over the years because they won world's best single malt, but then they've won world's best single cast single malt three more times. Yep. And and look, I think it's what I've probably called the the turning point for what we had here is for Shiraz is that was the turning point for the whiskey industry. It was. And we're seeing so much growth because of it, which is really exciting for us as That's well. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, we can't keep up. It's uh, no, it's just discovering so much new happening. whiskies every day. I mean, we what did we discover recently? Noodle Doof. Noodle Doof. Noodle Doof. Yeah. In Karoit. They produce one cask of whiskey every year, but we tasted it and it is exceptional. Like They first released whiskey and they nailed it the very first time. And that aligns with some of the other distillers that we now champion, like King Lake and Spring Bay did the exact same thing. They made the uh, incredible first whiskey release. on their first release. Yeah, And amazing. they've only gotten better since, which is out of this world. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. as for that, is there bars that people can go to around the world that really champion and highlight that kind of spirit? Yeah, look, we've been – we talk about this a lot, don't we? Yeah. Because there are so – we travel so often. There are so many bars around the world that do so many different great things. But, uh, you know, down to – in south of Japan, there's a bar that, that serves only Ardbeg. Whiskey and water. That's all they serve. That's all they serve. Um, But the sad thing as well is it's it's all the great thing, the sad thing, it's it's all about the people. So you can have a bar that has an exceptional bartender, owner, curator of collection and then they leave and the bar changes. So trying to keep up with that is fun. But what we've had, we've had a chat about this. We had quite a few that we love. So the pot still in Glasgow is one of our favourite Feels like home away from home. It does. It's, you, can, you can get a sandwich, you can get a pie, you can get a little pot of beer. You're in a pub, but it has exceptionally fun whiskey. Yeah, and it is so much fun. And it's fun. It's not too serious and technical. So I think it's like home away from home for us. Uh, there, are, there are different. So you've got bars that are, I think, 
technically great too. Like you're looking at the old Alliance in Singapore. They serve yep. one of the most amazing vintage collections of whiskey that I have ever seen. And I think anybody in the whiskey industry has ever it's, seen. It's definitely one of those highly prized collections for people who work in the industry just to go and see it. Yeah. Let alone drink that, just to see it. I mean, we're talking about old whiskey versus young whiskey, right? Yep. And this is old whiskey beyond anybody's dreams. It's insane. Yeah. But then there's your your beautifully fun bars like uh, that, are, like I said, all about the person, like Fiddlers down at the bottom of Loch Ness in Drumna Jocket in Scotland. And so you go to the bar and they have, again, it's a pub with a fish and chip van out the front. <laughs> Beautiful scenery. Uh, and then you walk in, you think, oh, pub. But then you, the collection of 20 sort of vintage whiskies catches your eye. And then if you get the chance to meet Johnny and view his collection, then you... <laughs> you're suddenly sitting in a chair with a thousand whiskies surrounding you. So yeah, uh, I definitely recommend fiddlers and asking to say hi to Johnny if you're there. Well, there's also Shinanoya in Japan, which I guess is more of a bottle shop with a kind of a little bar attached, but not really. It's mostly a bottle shop, mostly, yeah. And yeah. I think it's a, it gets pillaged by Australians generally because it's a, it's central location. Yeah. But I think when you're talking about Japan, you know, so many uh, – People love Japan for their unique culture and every time I go there it's different and every time I go there I discover a bar not by researching but just by talking to people and I think uh, one of the best I've ever been to and it doesn't have a huge uh, whiskey collection per se, it's more of a cocktail bar, was up north in in Hokkaido and that was Bar Yamazaki because the bartender was 91 years old (laughs) and he served us. He still worked there every night. He's sadly passed away now. But just the attention to detail in those Japanese bars and, and you walk in for whiskey and there might be 10 amazing whiskeys there, but just they can make something unique with those if you ask for it. Yep. And it's just that level of service, it just goes above and beyond, doesn't That's it? it? Yeah. But, but then, you know, you go back to Scotland and you sit on the pier in Bermore with a glass of Isla whiskey and there's nothing like it. So yeah. our industry just offers so many incredible experiences. Um, I think, you know, oh, you go back over to, to Whiskey Live in Paris and – You've got thousands of people in one location, but you can still have an incredible time. Cocktail bars on the roof, a collection of whiskey that we can't even get into. It's that rare. Yeah, and it's one of those things that uh, Whiskey whiskey Live in Paris specifically is famous for being one of the, the best whiskey fairs to go to. That's right, yeah. To celebrate this category. Um, Absolutely. There are smaller niche ones around the world, but that is the, one of the biggest and most successful ones. That's right. And look, we haven't even touched on America. I think when you go, when you travel, I think ask people at your local bar, they're the people that know best. Then there's people who do the Kentucky Bourbon Trail as well and have the best time doing that because they get shown all these great experiences like at Maker's Mark. But there are all these great distillery experiences around the world. Like the ones locally you've already mentioned backwards here which is a great place to go to because it's the town. It's it's right in the centre of the town now. They'll move the distillery out of their family homestead into the centre of the town. That's it, yeah, in, into an old building. And, uh, and you get to go away for a weekend yeah. and, and just live it. And that's what you want. You want a fireplace, you want a glass of whiskey. And, mm-hmm. they're, they're, I mean, Warbs Harbour down south in Tassie, they, they've got the most amazing seaside location now. Yeah, it looks like a it looks like being on Isla. It does, it, yeah. It's absolutely it, sensational. It's, it's amazing. It takes you somewhere. It's it feels like you're in an ad. It does, and there's also like a rustic uh, distillery experience, like going to say Belgrove down in Tasmania. Yep. Which you're on a farm, a sheep and rye and strawberry farm. Yep. Yeah. Which is and yeah, with a with a distiller and owner who farms rye 
invented the strawberry um, runner and also carves ice around the world. Yeah, he's a he's a very interesting man to spend so to spend a night with just to chat to him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh he could talk under wet cement as well. He's a <laughs> he's a very interesting man. He's a very welcoming man. <laughs> yes. Now, are there other other distillery experiences around the world that you think people should look out for if they're traveling? Yeah, look, we are, I usually specialize in Scotch whiskey. Um so Balvenie Distillery has been one of my favorites. Mostly because it takes you, it takes the time. It take and it, and you sit down with a small group. You don't feel like you're at Disneyland. You usually get to take home a little bottle. Yeah. And they put you in a uh, defender and take you around the distillery. <laughs> you feel like you're really bumping up and down in a, in a defender <laughs> with your auntie who's wearing tweed. It's excellent. You know the full experience. Oh. I think that's that's definitely one of them. And, and you know you talk about distillery experiences. I think the ferry to Isla is a distillery experience. The, yeah. The Calmac. You might, yes. It may go. It may not go. The lights may go out on Isla. They may not go out on Isla. It's an experience. It is. It's something I, that you need to to experience once in a lifetime. They'll cancel it with no notice whatsoever. That's, just done. that's it. And and uh, yeah, look, I think the warehouse tour at uh, at Springbank and Cadenheads is exceptional. Highly recommend. It's definitely that one of the best. Just uh, watch how much you drink on that one. When there's cast being open left, right, and center, you forget that it's cast strength whiskey you're drinking. Yeah, I think you and I both left there a bit worse for wear. <laughs> Definitely. But then, if you're looking abroad too, distillery experiences, I, I recommend making the trek to Hokkaido. Yeah. Getting on the train, then the little local train that's sort of rickety down a cut, like a, you feel like you're in Dreamworld or something. It's tiny. And then getting to the distillery, which is one of the only cold fired distilleries in the world now. Well, when it comes to whiskey, and if you can get into Takatsuru's house, so they've relocated the founder of Nika's house there. His wife was Scottish; he's Japanese, so the yep. architecture is exceptional in that house. It's absolutely beautiful. Plus, he moved the urinal into the uh, into his cupboard, so it's, it's a bit quirky. Well, it is, um, you know, arguably the founding couple of Japanese whiskey, right? Yeah, Rita and and Masataka Takatsuru, yeah, and. Yeah, that's such an incredible piece of history to, to keep a hold of that little house because they moved it to the distillery location, right? They did, yeah. Yeah, and it's an incredible, like, yeah, it's just an incredible nick considering they moved it. Yeah, and then there's also uh, Cavalon Distillery we were talking about earlier today. Yeah, look, I missed out on a trip to that. My yeah. partner Julian went, but uh, he has not stopped raving about it and how big it is and how amazing the location is and just, yeah, he... He tells this story of uh, being in the warehouse and saying, <laughs> can we go up to? So they racked their their casks and they had an elevator and they went up to the fourth story and opening the doors of the elevator, the extreme heat, extreme heat that hit him. They only stayed up there for a minute and then closed them and went straight back down again. But just a, a really unique location for whiskey to be produced. It is. And they've won awards for their hospitality experiences and their bar that they've got there. And Yep, this year I think they go runner-up and they've it's been open for so long now and they yeah. still continue to be acknowledged for their ex- like their exceptional um, experience. It's it is great. It is just an exceptional place to go to and I can't wait to have that experience because, again, Jules has just waxed lyrical about it. For That's it. And look, look, I keep going on and on, but I have to mention Puni Distillery. Yes. In northern Italy... As far as I know, it's still Italy's only 
whiskey distillery. Yeah. But it does sit at the bottom of the Stelvio Pass, which I'm a cyclist and that's a t- on my to-do list one day. So I think I'll be going back there. The architecture there is exceptional. It's modelled off the uh, the old um, dairies that they have in the area and allows airflow through it. Um, but what they don't show you in the picture is there's a car wash right next to it. Uh, <laughs> but it is in the Alps. It's, it's an exceptional location to go and visit. It is one of the most beautiful distilleries architecturally. And then I also love that they mature their whiskey in Mussolini's old bunkers. Yeah, yeah, around, they do. Yeah. Around the, the Alps there. They're, they're too thick to destroy. So they actually had to get special permission to, to mature them in there. Yeah. Um, kind of scary actually thinking about the history of them and and where they are and what would have gone on in that area exactly it is um it's historically significant and getting rid of them would be a shame but utilizing them for for something beneficial or it's beautiful that you can see something um positive being used in such a negative old or something that's historically negative yeah yeah yeah. It is it is an incredible thing. We're starting to see that with certain a certain distillery local to us that is now using some of the old cells at Melbourne Jail to mature their whiskey. That's right. And you know, utilizing the environment you've got and what hey what you can achieve with something that is relatively negative. That's right. Yeah. Um yeah, it's really exciting to see that. One final thing I think we should touch on today, something that we both get asked quite a lot. We should quickly define the difference between whiskey with the E and whiskey without. This spelling can be quite confusing for quite a few people. Yeah. Okay. So it all stems from Ushkaba, which is the water of life, the Gaelic word. So I actually lived in Ireland for quite a few years and it's an incredible language, but Scottish Gaelic and Irish Gaelic is quite different. Yes. Uh, so the E is used in Irish whiskey and it is not used in Scottish whiskey and that's just derived from language. Um, but now we see in America they use an E, in Canada they don't use an E. That's the quick answer. It's basically <laughs> stylistic differences now nowadays, right? There are exceptions to that rule, like all rules, but... I think if you're looking at a whiskey, you've got to go back to single malt, single pot still, look at the technical yeah. differences. Not the I spelling think the, of the E, no, even I don't know why some use E's and some don't. And in New World, it's the New World, it's... Open territory. Whatever you feel like using is, is what you use. Yeah, I, I know of some uh, families who might be making a Scottish style whiskey, but they have Irish heritage, so they spell it with, with an e. Or an American company with Scottish heritage will spell it without. Yeah, know? yeah. It is entirely up to the producer nowadays, comparatively to historical reasons. Yeah, that's right. And and I, I know some people get really funny about it too because they think that it should we should you know. For American style whiskey, we should be using an E, and if it's not American style, we shouldn't be using an E. Or if it's pot still whiskey, we should use an E. But the reality is, it's not like that. It's whatever the distiller chooses, and it it's, we're seeing them, yeah, break the rules all the time. At the end of the day, it's all whiskey. That's it. it doesn't matter. It's all whiskey. It's all whiskey. It's all delicious. And it's all tasty. We all like drinking it. Now, I think we'll finish up our episode here. But I've got four final questions that I ask everyone. Okay. I want just very quick fire answers. I'm worried. Do I sound nervous? I'm nervous. <laughs> um, okay. Very first one. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. What was the first drink you ever had? Tequila. Tequila. Yep. Yeah. Yep. My dad. Was it one of those experiences that, you know, ruined it for you for a while? It was the opposite of most people. My dad sat me down and said, I've got a bottle of tequila. Here's all your friends. We're going to pass around the table until you enjoy it. And I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> Don't need to say any more. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. All right. 
What was the last drink that you had that you really enjoyed? Oh, sherry's always my favourite drink yeah. outside of whiskey. I just love sherry. I can't remember the last sherry that I had specifically, but any sherry is just great. Yeah, uh, you and I share that love <laughs> quite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you normally drink when you finish work? A beer. A beer, yeah. yeah. I, you know what, I, I do love a beer because you've been working all night. Imagine going to the gym and working out for six hours and then someone saying, here, have whiskey. You'd be like, oh, my God, I'm so parched. Something long, please. So beer and then I love doing a blind taster. Yeah. Somebody give me something blind so I can uh, sit down and enjoy it as the whiskey it is, not for the brand. Yeah. Test your palate as well, all that kind of stuff. It's fun. It's more yeah. fun. Now, final one. Yep. Often called the bartender's handshake. Fernet Brunker, is it something you actually enjoy or is it something you just tell people you do? Something I didn't enjoy until I went to Italy and started really exploring Amaro's and like any other kind of digestive. They're absolutely delicious once you get into them. Once you start delving into that world, it's pretty easy to understand why people enjoy it. Yeah, and it's situational. Like if, if you put Fernet Brunker over ice for me and I sit down outside and I'm watching the streets of Milan, I am going to love that. If somebody gives me a shot of Fernet Branca after work at a bar, I am not going to enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they do it. Again, it comes down to that experience, right? It does, yeah, absolutely. It's the experience. But I think as a drink it's really good. Yeah. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for joining me. It's always such a pleasure to chat to you about whiskey, as we, well, do on a day-to-day basis. That's it, <laughs> But thank you for helping me out with this today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to having a drink with you soon. Cheers. You too. Thanks, Lockie. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Spirited Discussions. I hope you had as much fun as I have and have been able to take away something you didn't know. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share with your friends and please join me next time on Spirited Discussions. Spirited Discussions.